to this episode of Rising Up with me, Yasmin Khan, a podcast about cultivating hope in a world that feels like it's imploding. Today we're going to be discussing a topic very close to my heart, the 20th anniversary of the huge global anti-war mobilisations that took place against the Iraq war on February the 15th, 2003. To this day, February the 15th, as it's colloquially known to those of us who were there, remains the largest demonstration in human history, where an estimated 12 to 14 million people in 600 cities around the world came together to march against Bush and Blair's determination to go to war in Iraq. For me, like many others, it was a deeply profound and transformational moment. I was hugely involved in the anti-war movement at the time. It completely dominated my life, not just in the run-up to the war, but in the years to follow as the occupation deepened and worsened. As it reshaped my worldview and led to some incredibly deep friendships, it's also something that continues to shape how I interact with the world today. Looking back, it's hard to put into words just how significant that moment felt. Discussions about the Iraq war completely dominated all aspects of cultural and political discourse, not just in the UK, but around the world. It was a topic that everyone talked about, debated, argued, in schools and workplaces, places of worship and universities, cultural festivals, in the media, and of course, in the corridors of power. It just felt like a completely seismic moment. The New York Times article at the time said about the movement that there still may be two superpowers on this planet, the United States and world public opinion. But just over a month after February the 15th, the Bush administration sent US forces into Iraq, beginning the war and a violent occupation that would last nearly 10 years, leaving hundreds of thousands dead and completely reshaping the Middle East. It pains me, 20 years on from the Iraq war, to see just how accurate so many of our predictions were, whether it was in terms of loss of life, the privatisations of Iraq's resources, or just the complete destabilisation of the region. So to reflect on the movement, its legacy and its lessons, I sat down with two renowned activists I first met through the anti-war movement. Nick Dearden, Director of Global Justice Now, and Assad Raymond, the director of War on Want. We discuss how this unique day and unprecedented mobilisation was organised, how it felt on the streets of London, and the legacy of the movement which might not have stopped the war, but certainly changed history. We also talk about how we each navigated our own feelings of despair after the war began, and what lessons there are to take from that moment about how we cultivate resilience after huge political setbacks something that feels particularly pertinent in the face of the escalating climate crisis. I hope you enjoy our conversation. It left me feeling so invigorated and inspired. Please let me know what you think over at risingup.substack.com. Now, over to Nick and Assad.
Nick and Assad, thank you so much for joining me today. It feels incredibly special to be able to sit down with you, two people who I met through the anti-war movement, and reminisce on a time which wasn't just incredibly momentous in history, but was pretty seismic in terms of my life, and I'm sure yours. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the movement, how it was built, the legacy, and everything around that, Let's start with some introductions. Nick, you go first. Yeah, sure. So I am the Director of Global Justice now, and I've been working for these kind of organisations for about 25 years. And I think growing up in quite, a, in quite a sheltered area and then going to university, I was suddenly exposed to a whole different world that I'd never been told about in my education or by anyone I grew up with. And it was, um, it was quite shocking how different things were to, to how I'd been told they were. And so I think that's what kind of propelled me into activism, left-wing politics, coming out at university was a, was a huge thing as well that just exposed me to, to the injustices of the world. And shortly after I left university, the anti-globalization movement burst upon the scene. And that's where I met Assad. Um, and, then, and then as we'll go on to talk about, I'm sure the war the war, in a way, brought an end to that kind of anti-globalisation moment. Yeah. And Assad, tell us about where you are now and what your involvement in activism has been. So I'm a director of a radical organisation called War on Want that works with social movements in the global south and works with progressive communities here in the global north by building power, focusing on the root causes of poverty, inequality, climate injustice, and including war and militarisation. I suppose my journey, like many people of my era growing up in the UK, a child of migrants, was radical black politics um, and coming through the black and the Asian youth movements of the late 70s and early 80s really situated the struggle against racism and state violence in the UK within an international lens. And that really propelled me first actually into the first Gulf War, which was, of course, 1991. And looking at that anti-war movement and thinking this movement is overwhelmingly white, it fails to recognise the racial reality of the dehumanising of the Arab people and the Iraqi people in particular, and how that was normalised in both racist violence in the UK, but also the attack on our civil liberties. So during the time, for example, in 1991, Iraqi and other Arab students were detained without charge or trial. It was like an internment, and that was largely just forgotten and were ignored by the mainstream peace movements. So, uh, you know, that I've been involved in the anti-globalisation movement and, and other sort of globalised struggles, which I suppose helped laid the foundation of both that experience of 1991 to the war, not just in the Gulf, but of course the war on terror and then preceding the war in the Gulf was the war on Afghanistan. You've touched on something really important there, which we're going to get to a little bit later in the conversation, because I think it's it can be easy to look back on that period and think, and oh, that was just about what was going on in Iraq and then like the civilians over there. But it was very much in the context of the war on terror, which was directly impacting communities here. And I know all, all three of us ended up spending a huge amount of time on that as things got kind of darker and darker in the years after the invasion of Iraq. But I'd love to hear from you guys. Why did it feels so important to you to be involved in this particular movement at that time? I think, yes, for me, I suppose I, t I take a step back and say, you know, when 9-11 happened in 2001, literally 10 days later, we had 
over a thousand people gathered at Friends Meeting House to convene and found the Stop the War Coalition. And coming from that both black and anti-racist tradition, I was one of the organisers, right, and spoke about why this anti-war movement had to be very, very different from previous anti-war movements and why the founding slogan of that anti-war coalition was not just stop the war, it was also say no to racism and Islamophobia and no to the war on terror. Because already those of us who have been working on uh, civil liberties, anti-racism, human rights, all totally already understood what was going to happen. It could have replicated itself, you know, sort of peace movement and anti-war work, sort of white middle class, or it could be something dramatically different. And to a large extent, we made it dramatically different. We engaged with the Muslim community, the Arab community. So those first demonstrations, which started off like only 30,000 people, then 75,000 people, then 100, then 150,000, were markedly different because they were so diverse. And Nick, what about you? Mm. What made you want to get involved in the anti-war movement? So I think Assad's right. You can't just look at it as a single moment. What was happening in the late 90s and early 2000s in this country was important. I mean, up to that point, I'd gone on protests and they'd been pretty boring. The Reclaim the Streets protests in the late 90s, everyone wanted to be on them. I mean, the criminal justice bill under the Tory government in the late 90s that had brought all of these people who knew how to organise a party into protest politics, and this transformed them into parties, essentially. It was a counterculture as opposed to simply a protest movement. So that was going on. But then globally, neoliberal capitalism, which at the time in this country, you know, we just referred to as Thatcherism, probably that's what we knew it as, this idea that the government should get out of the way and, you know, leave things to the market and privatise everything in sight and so on. That was being forced on the rest of the world. And that was the thing in 2003 that I'd already been working on and active on for five years and was making me incredibly angry um, because, you know, once you start learning about the history of this country and empire and so on, and, and you saw in the global economy that was being created at that time, a replication in some ways of those structures of power. For, for me, it was everything. It was everything that I wanted to change. And unfortunately, although we had a, a Labour government in this country, um, they were quite committed to taking that agenda forward. I mean, they were really committed to the globalisation of, of neoliberalism. You know, up to that point, at least in this country, most people didn't really take much notice of what we were talking about, to be perfectly frank. And to the extent they did, it was a bit 50-50 what you thought about the whole thing. Um, the war was very, very different. All of a sudden, people could see this agenda, I think, for what it was, um, where it went beyond just this kind of global economy stuff that I'd been concerned about for a long time, you know, invading and bombing countries. I mean, it was almost like, you know, and I think, you know, people recognised this in, in Tony Blair himself. I mean, it became this messianic crusade he was on at, at that time. George W. Bush was an extremely unpopular president in Britain. And I think it really caught people off guard that Tony Blair had decided to ally himself with this guy to such an extent. I think at that point, people began to realise something seriously wrong here. That was a big tipping point in society. An awful lot of just ordinary people, members of my family, all of a sudden were like, oh, OK, I see what you're doing on this one. Mm. When Afghanistan happened and the bombing on Afghanistan and people saw pictures of people losing their lives, who were just innocent civilians, I think it really struck people who were they bombing you know this was they were talking about it as a war 
and but it was a war against a whole people people who were who were not responsible for this and so you didn't really have to be overtly political to feel it was morally repugnant that some of the poorest people in the world were just being blown to smithereens were starving during the winter and rather than us you know, dropping food on them, we were dropping bombs on them. I think there was also this recognition that this war and what was happening wasn't simply about what was taking place against people over there. It was the same apparatus was also used domestically. And so that feeling that actually our civil liberties and our human rights are being ripped apart and being set aside, I think also alarmed. And I just felt like I was living and breathing, organising 24-7, building towards that February 15th. What was your involvement in the run-up to the 15th? I was one of the national organisers for Stop the War Coalition. I was on its coordinating committee, one of its founders. And in that sort of nine months prior to February 15th, we were in Florence in Europe, Scandinavian countries, World Social Forum with Brazil, talking with movements saying, we have to have one day when we all mobilise. We have to have one global day of action. We have to show that whilst the world leaders are all in this coalition of the willing, the people reject this narrative and stand with the people of Iraq. And we knew that, you know, whilst we'd had hundreds of thousands before, if we wanted any chance of stopping the UK from joining that war, it would have to be, you know, a million or a million plus. Yeah, I really remember after the autumn demonstration in 2002, there were about half a million people on the demo. And the strategy was, oh, if we can just all get everyone who came on that demo to bring one person with them, we'll hit a million. And so that was the strategy. It was like, this is completely doable. Everyone just needs to bring a friend. And I think there were so many of those kind of moments where really clever organising came in to play. We really, I think, embroidered the sort of fabric of of society at large and pulled it together and gave it a target and gave it a way of expressing that and uh, to be able to do it and feel that you were part of this global moment as well. I think for many people it was a transformational moment. I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head, actually. And I think transformational is a really important way of of looking at it because some of the things you're describing there, we've not managed to replicate as activists on a global scale on that level. You know, I was looking at some of the climate strikes that were happening where, again, we got six million people, they're saying, around the world, especially amongst kind of kids. It was really kicking off. But what was really interesting about that particular moment is, yes, we can describe how kind of activists were involved in the anti-globalization movement or civil liberties organizations, but it was way beyond that. It was way, way beyond that. One in 30 people in the country were on that demonstration. That means that every single person in this country knew a bunch of people that had traveled down from wherever they were in the freezing cold, but had also planned to do that. And I don't know if you remember those months before, it was all anyone talked about, whether they agreed with it, whether they disagreed with it. Um, one of my clearest memories of that time was the mirror who on their front pages every day were pumping out anti-war messages of course that was just one example but we saw huge action in the unions you know I was a student at the time that was really big I think what Asa described what was very unique about it was the direct involvement of the Muslim community and the organising in faith communities talk us through a little bit of the colour of of what those months felt like and what was involved on a grassroots level there were just meetings all the time weren't there and it went back to Afghanistan 
Afghanistan because, mm. I mean, I remember speaking to roomfuls of hundreds of people on student campuses around the time of Afghanistan, and we were we were a much smaller movement then for, for various reasons. I mean, I think it had been easier for for Blair to convince the public that there was a case for the invasion of Afghanistan because of, of the Taliban in, in protecting Al-Qaeda and so on. Although there was a big movement against it, and as Assad said, I think I think the Muslim community very well understood where this was heading. Um, I think for a lot of liberal commentators, um, that, that seemed more reasonable. Um, but nonetheless, um, it, it was huge. And then I think as it went towards Iraq, you see, the other thing which is almost incredible now is there was no link with Iraq at all. I mean, that was what people just couldn't get their heads around. It was like you said it was about this thing over here. And yet there's no link with this invasion. At that point, I think, you know, people people did decide this guy just wants war, you know, almost for its own sake. It was he just wants to remake the world. But he did want war. Like just, you know, I was reading today, going back over the notes that actually Blair had committed himself to Bush that he was going to go to war. We're with you all the way and we will go to war whilst he was pretending to go down the UN route or pretending to go the parliamentary route. So backstage, they'd made the commitment. They already had. And do you remember we we used to watch Rory Bremner on a a Sunday night? And I mean, there was a takeoff he did of it where I, I remember he was pretending to be both of them, you know, on a call. And and it was like, you know, it was sent chills down your spine, actually, because it was like, I reckon that's exactly what happened. And I think people were genuinely horrified. And the fact that... He wouldn't listen, even as the movement grew and grew and grew. And it was quite clear. And I think this is one lesson from the anti-war movement. It was quite clear that the British establishment was actually quite divided on this question. I mean, there was definitely a part of the British establishment that thought this was pretty crazy, really. And, you know, they've been proved right. But I think that you can't underestimate the power that that gives a movement when the establishment itself is not united or committed to something. It allowed us an enormous space. And we went from me speaking (laughs) to Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon and Jesse Jackson speaking on platforms. And at that point, it was most certainly the biggest thing I'd ever been part of. Mm. You're, You're absolutely right. I think it became absolutely apparent that the government was committed to war without any evidence. And I mean, in my student movement days, I've been involved in heavily in anti-Ba'athist movements, right? Supporting Iraqi students against Saddam Hussein when Saddam was the favoured child of, of the UK and the US. And so people were like, hold, hold on, isn't this the guy we were arming? Isn't this the guy who's the dictator who was our ally? And now we're about to just, on the pretense of, of those weapons of mass destruction, which was so clear and apparent that there were no weapons of mass destruction, that I, I think it crossed the line where people could see through the tissue of lies that had been put forward to them. But the lesson was, for me, was none of that, none of that would have been possible. They didn't create the movement. The movement created Mm -hmm. this momentum that then splintered part of the establishment, forced part of the media to have to respond to this agenda. They couldn't ignore it. How could you ignore hundreds of thousands of school students walking out of school in opposition to the war. How could you ignore the fact that public meetings were 
each one in local areas were at minimum of a thousand people, if not more. I mean, you're talking about opinion poll after opinion poll showing the majority of people because we won the argument. And that's why I think that point about the organizing of that initial Stop the War coalition was so important because what you had were people who were communicating with parts of society and parts of our community that were not narrowly defined by what would call the old left but also i put really put into people's minds that maybe we were going for war because of the control of oil and i think that people understood that actually this wasn't about 9-11 this was a, a war about iraq's oil supplies it was about the west's role in the middle east and again i think you didn't need to be an academic you didn't need to be a, a, a political activist for people just to say they're going to war for their own interest, not for us. And um, and that I think was a you know was quite a was quite a pivotal moment. And I uh, I agree with you, uh, Yaz. That it's been interesting that I still this it's still the largest coordinated mobilization of people on a global level we've ever seen, and that the climate mobilizations potentially have been larger in number but not larger in mobilization. So more people have said, I support this by being online and sending a signature, but actually people physically marching, February 15th is still the largest coordinated mobilization of protesters we've ever seen. So let's remember the actual day then. I imagine we were all very busy doing different things because the scale of the demonstration meant that there were several different starting points, different areas where people were gathering. I remember I went to the LSE and we'd planned a little kind of pre-gathering thinking, oh, there'll just be like a couple of hundred people. And it ended up with thousands of people being there, just a sea of people. I remember I did a speech um, that probably no one could hear because <laughs> it was just, you know, so loud and vibrant. And after a while, we started making our way down the strand to approach the demonstration. And all I remember seeing everywhere are just throngs of people. Like every time we went past a road, there'd be more and more people coming in. We knew at that point, I think, that this was big. But I mean, we had no idea how big it was going to end up being. And I also remember that there was no mobile phone signal. Basically, we'd broken the whole system of phone reception because there were so many people on the demonstration, <laughs> which kind of meant that you couldn't get in touch with anybody, which, again, gave it this slightly ethereal feel. Yeah. I had friends and family also coming down from different parts of the UK because there were coaches booked from every small town and large city. And again, some of them, you know, they didn't even get into Hyde Park in time no. and then eventually we got to Hyde Park and I remember it was freezing cold and we were just all there shivering but also just having this huge sense of amazement because yeah. looking at the people around us it just felt like this was something really momentous and for the first time I think that day standing in Hyde Park listening to those speeches I just genuinely thought this is it I think we're going to win. We did. We did. Yeah. And and that was the turning point that day, right? So I went on that day and I was like you, I met at the LSE. And 
I was just trying to make the, the march interesting for people. So I remember we'd stored as war on want, we'd, we'd got a load of balloons, greed kills and Bush's face on and helium. And some professor had stored them in his office for us at the LSE. And we all met and we were making placards and blowing the balloons up and whatnot because it was so big. You know, you just didn't really know what your role in it was. So, I mean, for me, it was just trying to make it interesting. Now, I remember getting as far as Piccadilly Circus, and I didn't get any further because me and a friend had got, we'd also got those horrible rubber masks of, of Tony Blair and George Bush. <laughs> and we stood on Eros and we put the masks on. People loved it. I mean, people went crazy. I, it was like a press pack around us. And it was on the front of the Independent the next day. I never got any further. And it was freezing cold. I mean, I stood there for about three hours so cold. with our friend Mel. And um, we were freezing. And at that point, I got a cab back from the South Bank back to Warren Watt's office. And I just waited for people there because we couldn't get hold of people anyway. And I remember just watching the news coming through and crying, actually. Because you're right, at that point, at that point, I thought they cannot ignore this. We knew just from the number of coaches it was going to be big. We didn't know how big, but even we knew it was big. And then the moment you're there, like at eight o'clock, and you look around and you go like, wow, there are already so many people here. And then, you know, messages coming through, you know, on texts like, it's packed here, it's packed. How many do you reckon? And I think that sense, even for us, was like, this is not hundreds of thousands. This is not a million. This is like two million people are on the streets. This is incredible. And as we got to Hyde Park, I still remember getting to Hyde Park, getting onto that stage and calling people who were the chief stewards for the for the march that started from Houston area. And people like, um, has the march started yet? Because we haven't moved. We're like, Hyde Park's full. And... You haven't even started, and I never people, got there. Yeah, people were like I, I've <laughs> just stood still for four hours, and I've never moved, and I've not moved, and um, it was just an incredible, right? I mean, the, London was paralysed. London was full, fully mobilised. Every street, every main road, every tube station was just packed with people saying no to war. Yeah, I, I cried a lot in Hyde Park with the speeches. Actually, yeah, me it, too. I'd never. I'm actually getting a bit emotional now, actually. It just, the atmosphere was electrifying. It felt like such solidarity. You know, you kind of had all these people, just strangers around you because you didn't know anyone. You lost your mates ages ago, you know, or you kind of knew some people. And just this sense that, of community. And this is the thing yeah. I think that you get on demonstrations that you can sometimes forget. And then the speeches and... um I remember Reverend Jesse, like Jackson, you know, the keep hope alive and Corbyn doing his thing. And um, yeah, I just remember crying a lot and just thinking, I think, I think we can do this. I think we've won. Yeah. And not yeah. just in, in the UK. I mean, the Italians, I think, beat everybody. They got three million in Rome. The Spanish got two million in Madrid. You just had this sense that you were part of something so much bigger than yourself. You were part yeah. of something that wasn't just European, that was global. And again, it comes back to what Assad was saying. Really, it was almost like the intersection of like anti-capitalism, anti-imperialism, anti-militarism, anti-racism. And it almost felt, right, we, we can do this. <laughs> I, I, and and if you remember the the slogan of the sort of movements at the time was another world is possible, right? 
Mm. And it and, and I remember a moment standing on that stage in Hyde Park and you know, yeah, we all the great and the good were speaking and it was like amazing, you know, and again the cross section because you had the Liberal Democrats speaking, you had the I remember yeah, him speaking. <laughs> you had but 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 in that sense it was like quite amazing, right? And then people were past like Kali Minogue's on the march and this person's on the march and it was just like and they were just another person in this milieu yeah. of people. Then we start getting the calls from the different anti-war groups around the world. And it started going and you started getting a sense of like, oh my God. And and early in that morning, as we were mobilizing, the marches had already started in Australia, in Asia. And, and so it was already started to beat. Like we would get these numbers coming through and we're like, wow, they're massive everywhere. I, I definitely felt like most hopeful at that moment thinking we are, we're going to stop this war. It, at the very last moment, it's going to be impossible for Tony Blair to go along with it, which will make it so difficult for George Bush to go to this war by himself. And if you remember the UN, you know, this is not endorsed by the UN. The weapons inspectors were coming out and saying there's no evidence of any weapons of mass. It just felt like on on every angle. And, and but the, the Germans and the French, right, in the UN security, I mean, yeah. you remember them at the UN standing yeah. up and saying, I just don't believe you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah. yeah. and it really felt like, and we don't often feel like we're in such a, a majority, right? I mean, we're, yeah. <laughs> we're campaigners. I mean, getting to that stage where you could see the size of the majority that you were part of on a single day. That's really emotion. Yeah. And I think that that through the day into the evening, you know, and as the uh, the sun was going down because it was winter and it was getting dark early and, and yet there was no end to the sea of people. And, you know, you walk through central London and everywhere was just full of anti-war people, right? And every pub, every restaurant, every bar, placards were everywhere, people wearing stickers, you know, and everybody was, you you knew you were part of this incredible wave of humanity. And I think for a lot of people, it gave them a sense of recognising there is incredible power when you're part of a big movement of people. And so many people to this day, to me, say the moment they became political was the war in Iraq. Some people said the first demo they'd ever been on in their life was the war in Iraq. And then said how, if you remember, there were these chat shows where people were saying how they sat on coaches with these people and they'd always thought like they were like, you know, lefty activists and they loved it. People were sharing their sandwiches and their drinks and hot coffee. You know, this people were rebuilding a sense of connection. And when we think about from the 80s to the 90s, how much the sense of community had been deliberately destroyed institutions of progressive thinking that had been dismantled. This anti-war movement, in a weird way, just reminded people of what we'd lost as well and potentially what we could gain. And I think that was immense for people. I definitely feel the sense of connection was one of the most special aspects of the anti-war movement. And it's one of the things that I think whenever people say that, you know, they're reluctant to get involved in activism and, and what does it do? I always say the one thing it does straight away is give you this sense of community, which just feels so special. So perhaps now it's fitting to look at what happened afterwards. The weeks that followed February the 15th were 
quite difficult, I think, because we had this wave of public opinion that had come out on the streets, very clear in its message. And yet, despite that, those in power were still determined to go to war, you know, despite weapons inspectors saying that there weren't weapons of mass destruction, despite kind of all the warnings, despite the fact that the UN weren't on board. And I really remember watching that parliamentary debate, seeing MP after MP stand up and make justifications for taking us on a military endeavour which was going to just kill so many people. And I just knew that it was going to be destabilising, that it was exploitative, going after Iraq's natural resources. And I have to be honest, I think just watching that parliamentary debate, a tiny bit of me died. And I lost so much respect for how the parliamentary system works or doesn't work. Or maybe I just woke up to it. You know, I was young and naive, right? (laughs) And in the weeks that followed, we had resignations, Robin Cook famously, quite a few kind of Labour ministers ended up resigning. But at that point, it felt like we were clutching at straws. And then on March the 19th, the first bombs started dropping. And for me, it was just a devastating time. I was absolutely gutted. I was frustrated. I couldn't believe it. Um, It was all consuming. What was it like for you guys? Uh, I felt personally, it was really tough. It was a really hard physically, emotionally time, politically on the level, it felt like we'd climb Mount Everest and then slid down at 100 miles an hour down the other side. And I remember the Stop the War Coalition committee meeting, and there was a marked um, division between some of us who said, our role now, we have not stopped the war. They've gone to war. That What we have to do now is prevent the bombs from dropping. So we have to target the American air bases. We have to do direct action. We have to blockade their arms supplies. We have to do all of those. And others who still thought that this could be won by another march. And I think at that moment, the coalition as a powerful force began to fragment. It was very hard and bitter and conversations and debates between very traditional left people who wanted another march from A to B and those of us who were saying, you know, we don't need two million people, we need a hundred thousand people and we block the air bases. The Americans need the UK air bases to be able to fly and drop the bombs. Even if we don't stop them, people in Iraq will still see that we're trying to do something and even if we save one life, it will make a difference. And I think after that, part of our movement had that sense of despondency. Part of our movement had a huge disagreement about tactics and part of the movement was just so shell-shocked by the violence of the war that actually people just felt like i think glued to their screens i mean if you remember our television screens were looked like video games right it was just Mm. immense explosions and general saying in a week we will have overtaken baghdad and and many of us saying this is not the end of the war it's the beginning of the war because what you'll have done now will have huge ramifications um and of course history has proven us right and many people 
left activism, didn't they? I mean, I know many people who were burnt out very quickly, um, never went back to it. And we it was, there was a constant refrain for years, what's the point of going on a demonstration? Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and I, I agree with you, Asad, but what kept me going, and I know that's, that's part of what you want to know here, Yasmin, was just pure anger. And I mean, the number of protests that we would go on, smaller protests that were mildly civilly disobedient, but not on the scale we needed. I mean, that, that was just a lot of what I was doing in those in those weeks as I remember it. But I think for a lot of people, it was incredibly hard. And I think people went in a lot of different directions from that point on. And one of the interesting things, I think, long term was this idea. And of course, Tony Benn um, said it at the time, that, that the real thing they've achieved is no one's going to believe a word they ever say again. And he was quite right about that. I mean, uh, nobody ever believed a word Tony Blair said again. But actually, I think it it did something more than that. It, it went to the heart of our political culture in, in ways that I think you can still see today and that in some ways have surprised me. I mean, the entire political discourse was entirely undermined in many people's minds at, at that point. I do think one of the lasting legacies of the of the Iraq war was it made it impossible for the UK to go to war yeah. for a decade, if not more. It was not possible. It wouldn't matter what war it was. The UK could not go to war after that. It's burnt every ounce of political capital that it had, and people were sick to death of it. And I, often people say, you know, you didn't stop the war in Iraq. No, we didn't. But we stopped the, the UK going to war in many other places. And we always thought at the time, of course, that they weren't going to stop at Iraq. I mean, that was always the fear as well, I think, that it, it fundamentally changed how a government was able to behave vis-a-vis those kind of situations. And I think it fundamentally changed the generation below me in terms of complete mistrust, as you were saying, Nick. It took away the validity of any kind of attempt by people in power to say that they were working in the interests of people. Because the legacy of the Iraq war, it wasn't just the three weeks of the bombing campaign, was it? You know, it was the years of shock doctrine, mass privatisation, sell-off of oil, rebuild of Iraq by American companies, occupation, the awful sectarian civil war that then ended up spilling out into the region. It almost kick-started this tornado throughout the Middle East. And I think for a whole generation, it was like, well, this is how politicians work, or this is how capitalism works, and well, they went to war for oil. I mean, it's almost, it was, it's fascinating to me now that everyone knows that that happened, and it's just written in popular culture, whereas at the time, you know, we were trying to kind of argue to people that this was happening. So I don't know, in, in that respect, do you think that, its legacy kind of lives on in social movements now? I think its legacy does live on. I mean, Tony Benn said, no defeat is absolute and no victory is absolute, right? And it's clear we lost the campaign to stop the war on Iraq, but we were not defeated, right? There was much we could say we were victorious about. The weaving together of these movements, the idea of mass mobilizations, the diversity of the movement, the connecting of issues, particularly around the war on terror and race and Islamophobia. They've had lasting legacy in this country in shaping a new left, right? And you could say, without that, would you have had the student protests a decade later? Without that, would you have had the youth climate strikers and a reformed climate movement? No, you would not. All of these were 
pivotal moments that got us to where we are now, where if you said to people, intersectional movement, be like, of course, how else are you going to win? These are all multiple aspects of the same struggle. Of course, are you an idiot? All of these things were, the foundations were hard fought and laid there. These people coming from different movements and networks, NGOs and grassroots movements and anti-racists, and all of that slowly started to fall away. But they didn't fall away and go back to being nothing. They got involved in different struggles. If you look at the Muslim community, actually much of it started getting into the war on terror, right? And what it meant for about Guantanamo and Belmarsh. And many of us were about the what was happening here in the attacks on our own civil liberties, whether it was the murder of Jean-Charles de Menezes or, you know, all of us who had formed relationships and formed bonds, those continued in lots of different spaces. And, and I think it laid the foundation for the ecology of the movement that we now see all around us. I wonder if there is there a, another connection. You know, for our generation, we did look back to the Vietnam War and the mobilisations around that as just tremendously important to the counterculture and the liberation struggles of the 1960s and 70s. And of course, it's not like they stopped the Vietnam War. In fact, the death toll was much higher than Iraq. It was just horrific, you know, barbarism. Um, and, And I always look back on that movement as just being so foundational to all of my politics in the 90s. And From what I can tell, people do look back to that moment of particularly February the 15th, but the anti-war movement in general, as as something where the movements took on the establishment in a huge way and and changed the tone of debate and politics in this country. I think it brought conflict back into our politics. It broke a consensus. And and with that comes the possibility for empowerment and change and liberation. We're, yeah, we're still living in the shadow of it. And it's, it's too early to tell, really, I think, still now, ultimately, what the legacy would be. Apart from, as you've said, Yasmin, we won the argument. We very clearly won the argument because that is how history is. History is remembered from our perspective. And I think that the legacy of it is incredibly inspiring to look at in that way. I noticed in social movements I was involved in how just the the structure of organising changed on a very Mm. simple level. The amount of meetings I went to in the decade after that where it was all kind of, we all have to be horizontal and we're even going to arrange how we sit differently. And that's very normalised now. But I think it's hard to forget that before then, there was a very specific mode of organising that was very centralised, very hierarchical. And I think The legacy of that is perhaps one of the most kind of exciting elements that went on from the war, or the anti-war movement, I should say. But also, if you look at, um, would Jeremy Corbyn have won the leadership of the Labour Party if he hadn't been one of the anti-war MPs? People said he had integrity, he was on the right side, and people looked at all of the other candidates and said, but hold on, you voted for the war. Even in that election, even though it was a what nearly a decade and a half later, it still mattered to people where what you did because it was a sign of of where you stood in the greatest moral political question that Britain had faced at the time. It still anchors as a shorthand 
where you were and what you stood in your kind of politics at the time. And if you remember the videos that were being circulated during the time of his election, many of them were the speeches he was making against the war. Absolutely. Bernie Sanders too. Exactly. I, I don't think Bernie would have got where he was if Bernie had been. I mean, the question even when Biden stood was, how did you vote in the war? And they asked Obama that, right? And Obama said, I was against the war. Remember, he said, I was against the war. I mean, this repudiation of this Gungaho thing was such a marked thing in politics, and not just in UK and the US, but I think also in many other countries, where you were in relation to uh, whether you were pro or anti-war. So 20 years on from the Iraq war and the February the 15th mobilisations and everything that went on around that, both of you have still got your teeth in the game, haven't you? So one of the things that I'm increasingly fascinated with is I hear it a lot from people about how, you know, they might get involved in a campaign for a bit, face a defeat, or just generally feel like the forces that we're up against are so huge, so monumental that it almost makes them feel powerless in the light of that. So as one of the things I want to do in these conversations is to talk to activists who've been going this whole time and ask a little bit from you what is it that keeps you going and what enables you to keep going in the face of these big defeats when one moment you think we're so close where do you get the inspiration to keep going the only thing i can say really is bloody mindedness and anger for me if you've been on the losing side enough maybe you develop some resilience to it but Sometimes you do win as well. When you win, it's so important and it feels so good, of course. But I do think we're in an extremely unjust world. We are up against the most immense powers. Most of the campaigns we're involved in, to be perfectly honest, you know you're not going to win or you're not going to win in the way you think you're going to win. What we're all in it for is really, really, really big change. And that's not, not about to happen as a result of one campaign. And I think one of the things that I learned after doing this for about 15 years, was to try to be a little bit less egotistical about it. We're in a very individualistic society. Like we all want to feel we've done, you know, we've done something that succeeded and worked and therefore it's been worthwhile. And it was it was down to us individually. Like if I am not doing the bravest, most heroic possible thing I can at this moment to stop this injustice, then I'm a failure. You know, we've got to stop thinking like that. That's certainly the kind of thinking that leads to burnout. I don't, I don't know, but I'm just guessing when you look back at the great movements of history, you know, for the vote for working people and votes for women and so on. I don't know if people felt like that or not, but I, I suspect they, maybe they didn't. I got a really great bit of advice from another War and One member of staff, which was that the issues that we are working on are so huge that they aren't going to be solved necessarily in our lifetime. And therefore, we are part mm of a much broader struggle that is going on for humanity. And that has always helped me put things into context. It means like, I can go on holiday mm. and it doesn't matter. Or sometimes you can work really hard on something and it might not win, yeah. but it sparks something else. And I think the Iraq war is a perfect example of that because we might have talked about this like big defeat, but the energy of this conversation that we've had has not been at all about defeat, has it? It's about been about community, it's about connection, it's about inspiration, it's about global networks. And I think that kind of zooming out um, has always been helpful, helpful for me. You know, thinking through the last 40 years of different kinds of struggle, 
I, I was taught very, very, very early on, the power is the we, not the I, right? You have to build movements. The movements are where you get your energy from. They're what now people talk about self-care. It's about community care, right? That's, that's the bonds that will keep you. And I was always told those are the bonds that will keep you through the dark days and nights when you feel like defeat, but they'll also keep you going towards victories. And the woman who taught me a lot when I was about 14, 15 of politics was an Asian woman activist. And she had a great analogy. She said, you know, each one of us are putting our pebble on this pile. And you don't know which pebble it will be that will bring their wall crashing down. But you know that you were part of that pebble to when this wall does come crashing down. When will it fall? I don't know. You know, it's not like a linear on October 7th. It will collapse. But without us, there would not be a challenge. And now I spend a lot of time in climate because I think for me, what keeps me going is as much as I've hated the forces of injustice, I think our starting point has got to be, we've got to be driven by love of humanity and love of, of our people. In this moment, there is a lot for me in my mind about the war in Iraq and this moment, because we are now facing a war against humanity with the climate crisis. The same industries are at the centre of it, the fossil fuel industry, the same powerful Western interests, the same is playing out and it's playing out at a, such a global scale that it's not now about destroying just Iraq or one country in the Middle East. It's actually about destroying the whole of the global side. And when I'm faced with that, it brings me to the same point as when I saw the bombing of Afghanistan and Iraq. Like, I have no choice. I have to be part of this movement. But I also say to young activists that being part of the movement has so many different aspects to it. And when we think about February 15th, February 15th wasn't the committee of Stop the War who organised that, right? The organisers were those hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. They were the organisers. So find your place in the movement. Mm. Give yourself care. Know that this is a struggle, but know that actually if you want to sustain in this struggle, it's the relationships that you build. Again, like just the three of us, our unities were forged through the anti-globalization movement and the anti-war movement. And 20 years later, those personal political bonds are still as strong. And that is true for so many people. The struggle changes you. The struggle can be incredibly empowering, even in the midst of defeat. So nurture the good things about it, even in defeat, the relationships we have, the power that we have, the organizing that we've done, and laugh, laugh at the at that we nearly fucking brought them down on that. Well, that feels like a really perfect note to end on. My life has certainly been enriched by the activism that's led me to great friends such as you two. And I think it's so important to remember that, isn't it? That the connections that we make in movements nourish us in so many ways that actually, for me, is part of what keeps me going. Yeah. It's just so wonderful to have this network of friends that you know that whatever happens, you can pick up the phone and they'll be there for you. So thank you. Thank you for joining me on this. Yeah. It's been really great to talk to you. I guess I'll see you on the streets. Pleasure. Yep. See you in the streets, but also see you in the next party as well. 
Yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. Bye. You've been listening to Rising Up with me, Yasmin Khan. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode, please consider sharing it with your networks and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. It takes seconds to do, but it would really mean the world to me. To follow the show and delve deeper into the topics we discussed, join the community and subscribe to my Substack over at risingup.substack.com. See you next time.